Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. I am worthless. No good, broken, a liar, a thief, depressed, an addict. This is the internal language of millions of Americans that may be suffering from addiction, anxiety, mental distress, chronic chronic illness, trauma, and relationship issues. I Am Recovery works through helping clients heal wounds and see their value again, changing their inner dialogue to hope, love, and self-worth. Today, we are talking with the owner and clinical director of I Am Recovery. Jared Casey is a marriage and family therapist passionate about addiction recovery. He believes in a holistic approach to healing and with an emphasis on spirituality. Jared values genuine relationships, connection, and working through hard things. He loves to empower people and being witness to rejuvenated families and individuals. Jared, you got uh, quite a legacy, but thanks for being here today. Thank you, Shelly, and appreciate your uh, reminder of some of our values and some of the reasons that we're here. It's, it's always good to reflect and look at those things. Um, yeah, for sure, and I have to remind myself on a regular basis, too. I think that's just human nature, isn't it? Totally. <clears throat> um, Jared, you didn't always start out in recovery or in, even as in the therapy world. Can you give us a little idea of where you came from? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the short version. I was in sales for a lot of years and traveling all around the country and even into Canada a lot. And during that time, I wasn't spending a lot of time with my family. And I started feeling like this isn't really what I want to do with my life. I'm not capturing the meaning of what is important. So I made a pivot in my career and finished my schooling and decided to go into social work initially. Then when I learned about social work, I realized that was really, really hard stuff. That's where the real warriors are um, in the ERs and helping people right off of really fresh stuff. It was more than I felt like I could chew at the time. So I pivoted, learned about marriage and family therapy from a couple professors and started interviewing for learning about that. I went and got a master's in marriage and family therapy and started off um, bouncing around from different populations, working with children, working with adults, working with near homeless, working with near disabled, uh, families, couples. I was just kind of doing inter- internships at a couple different places and trying to get a feel for what was 
good for me or what I could be good at, what felt right, what didn't feel right. Um, and I landed in an inpatient program, uh, doing an internship there and I loved it, just loved it. Um, for whatever reason, the addiction population, the mental health with depression, anxiety, PTSD population, it really resonated with me for some of my own personal reasons as well, but it just felt more attuned to my mission in life. And I started finding passion in helping people in this demographic and all the while helping myself. Um, the old adage is you learn more from your clients than they learn from you over time. And that's kind of been a piece that just stuck with me. And while I was working inpatient, I started finding um, a lot of frustration with my clients when they'd leave. They'd come for 30, 60 days. They'd leave, and they'd re- a lot of them would relapse. And I'd take it almost personal. Well, what did I do wrong? How come they're not doing better? Like, why are these people not making it longer than a couple months after they leave here? So I started looking around and asking around and started finding that statistically, when people did transitional living, they had higher success rates of staying, staying in their sobriety or staying in their growth mental health-wise. Um, but there wasn't a lot of traditional transitional living in Utah County at the time. So I started looking at it. I started speaking to the people I worked with. Hey, why don't we do sober livings? Why don't we do outpatient? And the ownership where I was at, they were not interested in that. That wasn't their business model. Their business model was inpatient only. So when they didn't let me uh, explore that, I even offered, I'm like, I'll run it for you. Like, let's just do this. This is needed. Uh, I can't see any more of my clients relapsing like this. This is too hard. Um, they weren't open to it. So I took a chance and um, found a, a business partner and went out and just went for it, not knowing how expensive and difficult and hard that actually would be. And um, had a lot of resistance from the community as well, especially opening sober livings in residential neighborhoods. People tend to think that's going to be a bad thing. I don't know why, right? (laughs) So the stigmas are there and they're very real. And there's a lot of education and a lot of pressure. My first house I tried to open, we had about six months where the city was just pushing back and delaying and delaying. I was running out of money. My investor was running out of money too. And we were like, should we just sell this? The real estate is still good. Uh, I got a job offer that was paying, would pay really well. And um, my partner at the time was like, you know what? I'm in this, I don't care what happens. And she kind of motivated me to just go for it no matter what. So we just went all in and we're able to get the license from the city and start doing business. and. It's been a slow climb and a, a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of um, stress along the way, but incredibly fulfilling and really fun to watch grow and, and be part of people's growth as they do grow. That's awesome. Yeah, an incredible journey. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, I can hear the difficulty and the challenges, and I, I think I even saw part of those happening as you were putting I Am, am Recovery together. What kept you what kept you going forward? I mean, obviously, I heard you say that your investor um, was gung-ho and said, we're going to do this, you know, do or die or whatever. Was there other things that you did to st- keep on top to be able to st- keep your head in the game, you know? Yeah, I mean, honestly, there are so many times where the weight was just really heavy and I had to keep reminding myself, why am I doing this? 
start with why is one of those pieces you look at. If you're going to do something crazy, why are you doing this? And I always came back to I felt really fulfilled and I felt really good about it. And as I would tell my clients, you need to trust your higher power. You need to trust something greater than yourself. I had to practice what I was preaching. And many times along the road, I just had to turn it over to my God and be like, all right, you're the CEO. What do you want this? Do you want this to succeed? Because it doesn't feel like it. Um, <laughs> do, do you want it to fail? Because if that's what you want, I can do that too. And time after time, money would show up or a really like really hardworking client would show up and just help the program get better or a new employee become like really integral to helping the program succeed. Just little mini miracles after each other just kept testifying to me that we were on the right track and that we're doing something of value and of worth. And many times it's just, whoa, I don't know. I don't know how we're still in business other than um, we're meant to be in business at this point. And I feel if we continue to be on the right course of helping people and keeping those mission statement pieces like you talked about in the beginning there on track and remember who the CEO, CEO is of this business, we'll be okay and we'll continue to help a lot of people. Well, I love that I love that you that you practice and engage in the same kind of work you're asking your clients to do, right? Because healing is universal. I think it's a human necessity. And although maybe some of us escape addiction um, and maybe even, you know, heavy mental, mental illness, um, I think that, um, that we all have to practice, right? We all have to, as a therapist, you know, we need to do therapy and we need to be doing what we're telling, telling other people to do. And I can hear the spirituality that, that is an emphasis in your life. I'm curious, do you see your clients um, grab on to the concept of spirituality. I know that comes up a lot when we talk about recovery with other people as well. What do you see that, that in this industry? Oftentimes when someone's ready to change, they've, they've hit a point in their life where they'll do anything because what they're living isn't, it's not working anymore. And there's a saying, I think it comes from AA that the pain, the pain it takes to stay the same is actually greater than the pain it takes to change. And that, that tipping point generally makes someone a little more humble, a little more vulnerable, a little more open. And then they start to see the miracles in their life. And they start to see, I should be dead by now. Uh, I shouldn't be alive. Why am I alive? Is there some greater purpose for my life that's kept me here? And it tends to be when someone's at that point, they're far more open to spirituality and connecting with that higher power that some for some reason has spared their lives or kept them going this far and they just tend to lean into it now there is a, a breaking point though where someone will lean into it a little bit and they're like oh i'm good now i'm okay mm-hmm. and they want to retract and go back for what we call go get some more pain and go get some more humility and unfortunately industry-wise that can take several trips to inpatient care. It can take several trips to outpatient care. It can take several trips to jail or prison before someone has made that reconciliation that they really need a higher power or something greater than themselves to help them stay the course and work a spiritual program and work a recovery program and live in a way that sustains their growth. Do you see people in recovery be super successful without the spiritual concept? I do not. 
Um, personally, I see white knucklers. Um, some people will sustain weeks, months, and occasionally a year or two where they're holding tight to uh, coping skills and, and things that maybe help them sustain it for a while, but they're rarely comfortable in their own skin. There's a lot of them will say, like, I'd rather be using than miserable in recovery because um, they will feel it as misery. It's a form of misery. It's that pain level where they, they, they know they're at the max amount of pain they can handle, so they want to change, but they don't want to change all the way. So like C.S. Lewis describes it like an old cottage, right? I don't know if you're aware of that term, where he invites, you invite, you invite God into your cottage to make some repairs, and we say, all right, you can, you can fix the kitchen sink, but don't touch the walls, don't touch the carpet. You need to leave now. And, you know, God says, no, I came here for the whole thing. I'm going to tear it down and build it up and make it something totally different. So it's that process of giving in and continuing to give in, letting go of vice after vice after vice until you're remade and everything about you has changed is typically where the success happens. I'm, uh, I'm curious as you talk about that, that concept of, of, you know, giving up or surrendering your power, does that fall into the first step of AA? I mean, would you say the powerless piece is that here we are trying to control our lives and if we can let go of that and recognize that that's really not what we should be trying to do, do those go together? They really do go together really well. Um, I find they can be confused sometimes as some people don't want to accept that they have an addiction or a really severe mental health problem. But it's not really about that. It's accepting you need help. It's accepting you need something greater than yourself to give you a better way because what you've been doing isn't working anymore or isn't serving your life anymore. So that's, they can go really well together. But sometimes people will think it almost a step one is a stigma in itself. Oh, I guess I'm an addict. It's an excuse now. But it's not. It's like, I need help. Mm -hmm. You know, this is an area of my life I'm really struggling with. Well, and I think that's one of the, it seems to me that there's a, this is huge lie. And I think this is hu human beings that experience this lie is that I can do this on my own and I really can't trust anybody else because people have let me down. Um, what's your take on that? Um, it's, 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 an, it's, an, it's a truth for some people. I mean, it's a subjective truth. When you've lived in a way that every time you touch the stove, it's hot, you stop trying to touch the stove even when it's turned off. So essentially, your past experience dictates your present and your future. So it's building trust in something different than what you've been doing all these years or things that have happened to you. Uh, it's, it's a tough space to be in. It's, it's a difficult acceptance piece. Uh, you can look at it from a, a DBT perspective or a dialectical behavioral therapy of, I just gotta radic radically accept that things can be different that it doesn't always mean the stove is going to be hot. The outcomes can change and my life could be better and I can feel like crap at the same time. Hmm. That's, a huff, that's a tough dynamic to be in, a, that dualistic idea that both can exist in the same space. But they have to. I mean, they have to. Otherwise, you're going to get exactly as you are living. It's a little choo-choo train. Like, I think I can, you're right. Think I can't, you're right. And you have good reasons to be right. You've had lots of justifications, lots of things that have happened, but it doesn't mean it has to stay that way. 
it can change. You have to believe in change or else there's not much, there's not much of a point. Like if you can't believe in some change, you're not going to go very far. Right. How hard is it for clients to grab onto those concepts? Cause I mean, they've lived, some of them lived in, in cultures, in family dynamics, um, where that just didn't exist, right? These have been generational patterns that they've been in for a long, long time. For that kind of a client who just really doesn't have never had a good model, what what does it take for them to get to that place where they can sit in that dual dualistic place? Oh, it's uh, <clears throat> it's really really difficult. But living as an addict or living with severe mental trauma is also really really difficult. So people in the state, they're used to doing hard things. It's hard to get up and go chase a drug all day, every day and be homeless. It's hard to have nightmares all night or not be sleeping. So it goes back to that analogy of pain and change. So yes, these things are hard, but they're actually not as hard as the life they've already been living. So when they start to see that, usually it takes a shift into gratitude I'm grateful for where I'm at today. I'm grateful for what I can do. And then it takes a shift into perspective on how change actually happens. A lot of people in their addiction, they they fall into an all or nothing trap that they expect things to come right away, fast and hard. When reality, uh, change is more gradual. People don't get sick overnight, they don't get better overnight. So as we help them reframe, what does success look like you being in that chair is success. Honestly, you being in that chair increases your odds over 25% just because you sat down today. That's huge. Can we sit in that and just appreciate that growth that you're here instead of somewhere else that you know doesn't help you? And then what would 1% better today look like opposed to yesterday? Hmm. What's 1% you can do to change and improve? And let's own that and take joy and feel everything where a lot of them haven't been feeling for years so reframing helping them get there and stop getting stuck in old thinking patterns that's really a a big part of it right well and then they're gonna they're gonna fall into those old patterns over and over again and it's that process of having it happen less and less of the time recognizing it's happening and and being able to go back to what they've learned, right? The new skills, because those neural pathways are alive and well. <laughs> they really are. And I, I tell my clients, it's a one-to-one ratio. If you had one day that was bad, it's going to probably take one day that's good. Now, the only difference that I see is those who instill higher power, it's more like a three-to-one ratio. So those who give and contribute and connect with their spirituality, every time they're giving, Every time they're connecting with spirituality, every time they're thinking about others, every time they're living in a more fulfilling way, their higher power rewards them three to one at least. And they, they're the ones who have big gains fast. Mm. For some reason, I don't control the ratio giving, but higher power does. And it's God's generous and gives back to those who are trying. Mm. That's powerful. Well, and they don't have to, like, they can't create that, right? It just shows up when they do their part, which is, which is powerful. Yeah. And just helping them be aware of that. Like, can you recognize your higher power in this? Can you recognize these little miracles? And then let's just be really grateful. Let's learn to talk about gratitude 
and stop talking about all the bad and all the things that don't go for you and all those th moments that are just sour. And we'll start attracting more of the good in your life, more of the things that are working. I mean, the law of attraction is real and it's, it's really powerful in this industry as well. And helping people start to reframe and change their mindset to one that's outward and full of gratitude. Yeah. You connect both of those dots, you, you're really finding spirituality in a nutshell. And that spirituality is big time gains. Mm, that's huge. I want to ask you a question about something I heard you say is, is your why. The why that you did recovery, the why that you opened up I Am Recovery, the why. And what I heard you say is because you felt good about it. And to, as I heard you say that, I'm like, wait, wait, doesn't a why have to be bigger than that? Doesn't a why have to have this really great definition and you just are so anchored to it and you said, no, I just felt good about it. Yeah, I mean, the very essence of, of life, like what, what gets me up in the morning, why do I do anything? I want to feel good. Feeling good feels good, to quote my coach, Shay Aslett. And when you focus on feeling good and doing good, for some reason, good comes your way and it's full of purpose and it feels good. So my why at times has been challenged, especially during the really hard times and starting to learn to even appreciate those. I had one moment early on in Iron Recovery where um, one of my counselors, Cameron, which is a phenomenal man, he, we were really struggling and we were trying to figure out how to like structure things and make things work. And he looked at me and he's like, aren't we just so grateful for the, the actual affliction we're going through right now? I was like, you're nuts, man. <laughs> why, why should we be grateful for that? But as I sat in it and as we kind of talked through it, all that affliction made it really, really appreciate the growth and the gains we were making. So that kind of flipped the script and continued to build upon our why. We're here to feel good, but part of feeling good is learning how to feel bad and work through that affliction without the need to wallow in it or to be upset at it or mad at it. Instead, just respect it and lean into it. It's interesting that with all the people that we talk to, you know, when we talk to them and say, okay, you probably wouldn't ask for this, you know, again, you might not want to do over, but having learned the lessons that you've learned, would you give it back? You know, and it's always, it's never, it's never a yes, right? It's always, there's always appreciation for kind of where they are. And it, I think it's the same in, in addiction as it is, you know, and you're, you're talking specifically about, you know, starting and running a business and that it adds not just the value that you're adding to the, to the client, but like for you as a, as a person who's helping other people and running this business, it makes it so much more meaningful, right? Like if, if you just opened your doors and it was all easy, easy to take for granted, but having been through that, like, okay, how am I going to make payroll? How am I going to pay rent? Like, where am I get, how am I going to afford this type of thing? It just makes it so much more valuable to you, right? Like, don't you appreciate it more? Oh yeah. I've, I've got like a level five attachment to my business now. Like if someone, you know, attacks my business, it's like murdering me. Like, don't do that. It's not nice. Um, I probably wouldn't be nearly that attached to that involved if it was, if it came easy. Um, yeah. looking back too, it's kind of like a, taking a flashlight through a dark train tunnel 
And if I knew how long the tunnel was and how scary some of the corners were and how close the train would hit me sometimes, I don't know if I would do it if I had the full lights turned on. So, but does that like, does that give you, does that give you gratitude for your naivete? Yes, I'm, I'm very naive and, um, stupidly ambitious sometimes. And I fall in, fall into lots of hard learning traps all the time. Um, big, big learning curve for this guy right here. Which is a negative way to talk about it. Right. But, but I asked that question and in a sense that like you mentioned, you wouldn't have done it. Right. Like if you knew all of the factors, it'd be easy to, to back off. And you've been talking about, you know, attitude, positivity, spirituality, right? So spirituality, I think, is a different level of positive thinking, right? There's a different level of hope that comes from believing that you have someone else impacting your life on a higher level beyond just positive thinking. But you've talked about the power of positive thinking in recovery and in, in working through, you know, some of these things, this is not necessarily inside your wheelhouse, but it's more of a curiosity because of what you've been talking about. Have, have you ever seen any statistics as far as, you know, I, I would assume that as somebody's going through recovery, as somebody's trying to work through mental illness or health issues, I would assume that positively positivity has to help that process, right? Whether it's speed it up or make it more likely to be successful. And and maybe you've seen this, Shelley. Have, have, have there ever been any studies done on like addiction rates just in people who start from a positive attitude versus have a negative attitude? You know what I mean? Are, are, are negative thinking people, right? Fear-based thinking people more likely to be addicts? So I'll, I'll do my best to answer that, and Shelly, you chime in too. Um, the science of positive psychology is still pretty young. It's 20 years old, maybe a little more. Um, studies done on it are probably even fewer to be found. There are some really interesting documentaries out there that have some of the stats built into them. The documentary Happiness is a really good re- reference for anyone who wants to learn more about that. Uh, essentially, people who focus on positivity live longer, they have more fulfilling lives. They have better marriages. They have better relationships with their children. They have reduced anxiety and stress. And the numbers in, quoted in those documentaries are relatively high. Um, personal experience with clients, those who flip to a positive mindset, it's it can be really, really powerful, but can also be dangerous to a degree because sometimes they try to only feel positive instead of allowing themselves to feel crappy and feel through it where there is a a seeking behavior in addiction where someone's always trying to feel good or feel nothing and we have to reframe that and teach them to feel and allow your body and your mind your soul or whatever to come around to accepting all feelings as good and letting time pass through those feelings to teach yourself that you can feel bad and good. So for me, it's more a focus on what is working and not working and what's an outward mindset versus an inward mindset instead of positive versus negative. That's super interesting. Almost like the attitude of like contentment is more healthy, like super positive and super negative are both polar kind of dangerous areas to be in. And you've got to be 
comfortable feeling those highs and lows, not constantly just trying to turn everything into a high. That's interesting, that response. Well, I also think that the interesting piece is, is, is that if you look at it as a behavior you're trying to model or a behavior you're trying to implement, it, it doesn't work so well. I mean, you, you fake it till you make it, but there's developmental pieces in that. I mean, even at the very youngest age of, you know, birth to one, you're trying to develop this idea of trust versus mistrust, right? Can you trust the caretakers around you? And if you grew up in an environment at the early age of one where you couldn't really depend on that person, the very person that you needed to go to for love and affection and when you fell down and scratched your knee, um, you know, you went to that person and that's the same person that yelled at you or smacked you or, or whatever that behavior was. And there's a lot of other scenarios that can cause that. Um, if you look at Eric Erickson's developmental theory, he even goes as far to say, if you're not successful or if you're less successful than some at developing that trust versus mistrust dynamic, that you lose the capacity on some level to even have hope. And so sometimes we're looking at developmental pieces and you can teach them the skill, but they really have to start to, like Jared said, feel it inside themselves and experience those feelings of, like you use the word contentment or, you know, being able to be in that space of, I am really uncomfortable, but I'm really grateful for it. And that's a, that's a developmental thing as well. I think, what would you say, Jared? Oh, I, I just love when you talk, Shelly, you're so on point. Um, I feel like the industry is moving more towards self-compassion with less focus on feeling positive and, you know, doing those things that contribute to self-compassion is really the indication that you can be contented inside and that you can love yourself exactly as you are and heal early childhood attachment wounds to inner child work just through learning compassion. And there's a lot of ways that people can practice that on their own through being compassionate towards others as well as themselves. So that's a really a focus of growth right now in the whole world for anyone from any type of mental health to anything from relationships to couples and children and practicing real, real compassion. Mm, I, I agree. And, and I even read some recently, some, uh, studies around positive psychology, positive, you know, that framework, and even suggested that just positive psychology in and of itself is not sufficient. It's not successful unless you can surround somebody with all of the other skills that are required and that self-compassion. I mean, you can be as positive if you want, but if the words inside of your head are negative and hurtful and spiteful, it just isn't going to do anything for you. Well, it's like you said, like fake it till you make it's an outside inside approach or mm -hmm. we're looking at an inside outside. If you work on the internal, you can be interdependent with people, you can grow, you can build positive, you can take negative, you don't have to anything so personally. Um, one foundational piece that we use a lot at I Am Recovery with this, not to go into too much of a tangent, is we, we require everyone read the Four Agreements book. And, and essentially that book is a building block for self-compassion and understanding of self. Yeah. Well, in the integrity piece, right? Being authentic and showing up with, with full integrity is huge. Um, in recovering, to be able to, to feel like you have worth and value because you show up with worth and value.
Exactly. I love that book. And you, you said four agreements is required. You guys make everybody read that? Yeah, it's, it's, you can't phase up unless you read it and then present on it. So. That's fantastic. It was funny. I like how you said um, the fake it till you make it thing. So that's because that's kind of a false concept, right? Of like you're, you're faking it. And so that's not sincere. And so your, your, your point is that you really have to have the attitude of just start, right? You're, you're better to fail through it, but start and be authentic than to fake period. Yeah. You're shelling off all these layers. People wear a lot of masks and the faster you burn through those masks and get to the genuine and to the authentic, it, it tends to give you more gains that are sustainable and reason and like actual growth. It's hard for some people and some do need to wear their masks a little bit longer till they feel safe and until they feel comfortable with getting vulnerable. And that, that becomes a challenge too is promoting safety and vulnerability so that people can stop faking it and take off those masks and just get real. Yeah. I um I have a question. I'm going to divert a little bit and um, ask you this question because I heard you say that you started in kind of a residential treatment facility that was inpatient. These people were there 24-7 and getting substance abuse treatment, probably mental health as well. And you went to the transitional living piece, the the you know outpatient type of services, the life after that inpatient treatment. Do you have a, do you have, um, opinions as to whether one is the right or the wrong way? How do you see those two? Wow. Yeah, I definitely have opinions. Um, being in, being in both of those, I, I feel there's a need for both. Uh, I do feel the line blurs sometimes and people will spend too much energy in inpatient and not enough energy in outpatient. And what I mean by that is someone who's early, early in the recovery, say they're quitting drugs and alcohol, or they're really working on some deep mental health stuff. They go to a very protected environment Inpatients very protected. A lot of them 24 hour watch, no phone, no internet, uh, no outside opportunities to go find drugs or to be around negative influences. And there's a need for that. Like there's definitely a time and a place for that. However, um, a lot of a lot of inpatient programs I've seen that don't focus on the transitional piece, they, they fall into a magic pill thinking that this is the solution. And what I found in reality is the solution is, is not something that's done in 30 days. It's a day for a day, maybe three to one with spirituality. Well, someone spent a few years in their addiction or in their bad mental health, mental health. They're not going to recover in 30, 60 days. They will make gains. They will get a grip on things. Ideally, they'll get some tools to help them sustain it, but they're likely going to be white knuckling it for a year or two or three to get back really in a healthy, healthy headspace. But they're also going to be expected to be functional, rational adults or teenagers. And that's really difficult to do when you've had so many years of programming of I'm not good enough and all this other stuff. So for me, you definitely need transitional, whether that's outpatient, really solid sponsors, really solid coaching, uh, community, you know, connecting with a whole resource of friends, healthy family members, activities that engage you in positive ways, call it 
social interaction with whatever that looks like it could be church it could be uh sober softball it could be community um fellowshipping and giving back and service but you you just really need to plan on two to three years of really solid working a program that gives you fulfillment and gives you purpose and after that two or three years you're probably going to develop routines that last a lifetime and those routines will continue to feed your spiritual growth and your purpose in life the rest of the way. The fallacy is 60 days, 30 days. And it's, it's a sales pitch. It sounds good. You give us a bunch of money. Uh, you sell your boat. You know, you're going to miss where the boat was. And you take out a second on your house. And you put Jimmy, Joe, or whatever in, in inpatient for 60 days. $60,000 later, and bam, he relapsed a week later, and now he's struggling, and maybe it's even worse because he was clean for so long. So absolutely respect inpatient, but inpatients that don't have a focus on transitional care, peer support, sponsorship, coaching, they're setting you up to fail. Mm-hmm. I think that's it's valuable information to understand that someone is not going to be like you said they're not going to be in recovery for 60 90 days right that that's not enough time to sufficiently change those neural pathways that they've developed while they're using and and to know how to handle the the triggers that come when they smell that smell or go past that place that they were at they they need a whole lot longer and I heard you say 2 or 3 years worth of recovery is, is probably much healthier than, you know, 60, 90, even, even six months. Yeah. I mean, you, you can look at post-acute withdrawals and for those who are familiar, drugs get in the body and neural pathways, they, they stick in a person's body for two to three years. You could be doing a yoga stretch one day and, um, pop a, pop a little bit of a bone joint and release a little bit of old meth in your body mm. and instantly get a high and feel triggered. So that can happen for a couple of years, not to mention using dreams and thoughts of it and old patterns that are family members that are still using, friends that are still using. It takes time to develop a new life. And like we talked about the analogy with the train tunnel, if I tell a client right up front, you have to change every single thing about you. Most of them are going to tell me to go take a hike. But if I say, you're going to change this 1% today and do 1% better every day for the next three years, that's digestible. That's the flashlight five feet ahead, and they can do that. If I say 90 days, 60 days, you're going to see the whole tunnel, it's going to be a flood. And it's, it doesn't work. I mean, success rates from inpatient without traditional care are around 8% mm. over the first year of sobriety. That's a massive investment to be failing on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and it's a lifestyle. It's not, it's not just a short-term fix. And, and I think that's not, it doesn't just apply to addiction recovery. It applies to every aspect of our life. If we want to improve and grow, it's going to take time to develop that. And it, it's really, we're fooling ourselves if we think it's going to take 60 days or 90 days. But there is value for that treatment. Absolutely value for that treatment. It just can't end there. No, you've got to, you've got to consider the rest. You really do. Or else you're just, it's a sales pitch at that point. You're buying snake oil, like really, really plan on a lifestyle change. 
and, and taking that time to develop it for the long haul. We, we often replace the word recovery with just life. Mm-hmm. We say, oh, you're in life? Okay, what are you doing for your life? Um, not you're in recovery because we're all in recovery. We're all in life for something, trying to, trying to make this life a little more fulfilling in some way or another. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Jared, I, uh, I want to ask you about, I read somewhere that, that uh, you started out in your career as a roofer. <laughs> and it makes me laugh because I spent 20 years doing custom cabinets and finish work. I'm like, is it maybe there's a, some trend that therapists come from the construction industry? <laughs> yeah, my my dad had eight boys and one girl, and I think he had us all to be cheap labor. Having <laughs> us, and he put us on the roof at 12, 13 years old, and start working. So. I was, I was roofing from 12, 13 years old, all the way through my late teens, early 20s. And anytime I complained on the roof, my dad would say, well, go to college then, huh? Or you don't want to be a roof for the rest of your life, go get your schoolwork done. It was like this one-liner he had locked and loaded every time a complaint whispered out from any of us. Don't want to be a roofer? Good. I'm teaching you not to be a roofer. We're going to go to school. <laughs> It worked, Dad. I got about 22 years old. My brother, he pulled me aside. He's like, dude, you got to get out. <laughs> You're going to get trapped in this industry if you don't get out now. And I'm like, all right, peace. <laughs> so I, I shifted. But, you know, I've, I loved roofing with my family. I spent so many summers in the hot sun, eating lunches under shade trees, taking quick naps, talking to my brothers, talking to my dad learning about life. The work sucked. It was horrible, but I loved it. Like it was a community of its own. And I almost stayed in it just for that, Mm -hmm. just to be around family and people that really care. The life lessons I learned are invaluable, but I haven't been on a roof since. Like I won't hammer a nail. I've had my own roof has got a big old chunk missing for 10 years and I won't go put it in. <laughs> isn't that the way it always works? It's like, my <laughs> house isn't getting fixed. <laughs> the lifetime of it already. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Um, I heard you say early on, you know, you were trying to debate whether to do the job or do the business, right? I am recovery or take this really good paying job. And, and in hindsight, where you're at now, you kind of, I mean, you really wanted to do this because you were spending all your time working and not with your family. How has that shifted for you? And would you still pick the same, the same path? You know, the funny thing is the guy who offered me the job has a very successful, uh, inpatient program and he wanted me to be a lead therapist for him. And I asked him straight up, I was like, look, I've got a sober living started. I, I would like to keep doing that and work for you. And he said, no, you have to either do me or that. And I asked him, I asked him, what would you do? Cause he's an entrepreneur himself that's been successful. And he said, I'd absolutely bet on myself. So I was like, okay, that was just one more thing that was just showing me I was on the right track. So I bet on myself and went for it. I was also listening to a book. This was for Kurt. This is one of those entrepreneurial books. There's some book I picked up like in a discount bin for four bucks <laughs> that said, dare to do something stupid. I was like, that's a really, it sounds like me right now. So I, I bought the book and I listened to it. There's this entrepreneur talking about how stupid it is to do a business, but how amazingly rewarding it is. 
So for the last three, four years, it's been very stupid, but it's also been very rewarding. And at this point in my life, I would never take it back. Like, I'm so grateful I did that. That's incredible. I love hearing that. And, and I've watched your journey on some level from a distance, and I see the people that you help and the way it changes their lives. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it's relapse after relapse after relapse, and they, but they keep coming back because what you offer them means something to them. And I see that, and it's incredible. So I love that you, that you haven't given up on that dream. And it really kind of inspires me because I'm always asking myself, what's my why? Why do I do what I do? And for you to come in and say, you know, because it feels good, because I like what I'm doing and it just feels good, allows me a little bit more space and a little bit less hardness on myself of I've got to figure out this incredible why. So I appreciate that and the and the work that you do, Jared. Um, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Shelley. I appreciate you. It's It's been a, a parallel journey. I've appreciated you all along the way. You and your team have shared insights and knowledge and support and given me a lot of cheerleading from the sidelines. That we need that. There's days where you just you need it. You need other people in your corner and fighting for you, and that's the whole point, community and growth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I always feel like we're in this together. We might as well help each other along the way because if you can't help somebody else, it's, your, your success really doesn't have any value, I don't think. That's exactly right. Well, thank you. Thank you for being with us today, and um, we'll keep up the good work. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks, Jared.